Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hey there, everybody. This is Kelly, and this is the 24th episode of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we focus on disrupting the very normal tendency to be searching for people who are a perfect fit for us. True belonging does not happen when we find someone who is perfect. It happens when we find people who are perfectly aware they are deeply imperfect. We're going to talk about why that's so important and how to cultivate it in our relationships. Before we dive into this week's Facebook Live discussion, though, I have a couple of quick announcements. Uh, First of all, registration for the Lovable Weekend in Waco, Texas has closed, and I can't tell you how excited my wife and I are to come down to Waco and meet you. So if if you're registered and you haven't already let me know, know, feel free to drop me an email and let me know that you're going. I'd love to touch base with you. Um, Second, I'll be speaking at Crossroads United Methodist Church in Ashburn, Virginia this coming Sunday, April 15th at both of their morning services. Um, It's an open event. And anybody's welcome, you know, it's free, it's just Sunday morning service, so um, if you're in the area, if you're in the neighborhood, please feel free to stop by. Uh, I would love to, to see you there. Um, and then also I want to make sure you've got my free ebook about marriage. Uh, it explores how we have turned marriage as a culture essentially into a commodity and how we can reclaim it as the radically transformative experience it is meant to be. So to get your free copy, go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com and sign up in the right sidebar uh, to get the free ebook. In your introductory email, you'll get the free ebook and a free sample of Lovable. And then after that, each week on Wednesday mornings, um, you'll get my my weekly email with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. Um, And then, of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to the lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available in paperback and digital and audio wherever books are sold. So you can get your uh, get your copy from your favorite place to buy books. Um, I think that's it. Let's get right into this now. Uh, let's talk about how the most important thing to look for in a place of belonging is not perfection, but awareness of imperfection. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 23 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, The Most Important Thing to Look For in a Best Friend. This week, we're going to talk about how to begin setting aside our perfect facades so we can start building our belonging on our mutual brokenness rather than our imagined wholeness. Before we move forward, though, we took a week off last week, so we've had a bit of time, a bit of a pause in this year of listening, loving, and living, and I'm curious to hear about what's been happening for you in that pause. Um, what's been happening for you is you've focused on recognizing your truest, worthiest self and what's been happening is now you're starting to think about revealing that true self to others. So while you are sort of thinking about where you're at in this year of listening, loving, and living, I thought I'd, I thought I'd share with you something that happened to me and I'm going to be pretty vague about this to, to sort of honor people and protect their confidentiality. Um, but last week's episode, 
about how we use um, our opinions sort of as facades to stay safe behind um, and, and instead wanting to begin to shift towards um, putting those opinions aside for a while so we can authentically connect about the stories underpinning those opinions. Um, you know, I was in a situation in a large group setting um, where in theory there was a kind of intimacy going on, but there was a lot of dog whistles being blown. And I don't know if you know what I mean by dog whistles, but um, you know, a lot of comments being dropped that were essentially cues for debate about opinions. And, um, and I, I saw it happening and you know, there's that moment of discernment, right? Do you respond to the dog whistle? Do you say, well, that's an interesting opinion. Um, I sort of agree with it in this way and I disagree with it in that way. Um, and the last week's episode, our conversation sort of helped me to discern in that moment what I wanted to do. Cause then the question wasn't, do I agree or disagree with this person? The question was, will we be able to put aside our agreement and disagreement and engage our stories authentically before we start debating any opinions? And, um, and the answer, there was two answers that came back to me in that moment. One was, I don't think so. Probably not this person based upon my experience. Um, but number two, even if they were willing to surprise me, and we talked a little bit about that, letting people surprise you, even if they were going to surprise me, um, this probably isn't the setting for that. This isn't the space for that sort of intimate conversation. And so, um, so no, I, I'm not going to respond to the dog whistle <laughs> because um, this isn't the appropriate setting and maybe not the right person to, to have that sort of authentic connection about the, the stories that underpin our opinions. So, um, so sometimes that, that, that episode we, we uh, kind of had last week in that discussion, sometimes it's not about always helping us find the people we belong to. Sometimes it's also about helping us discern moments where we're not going to try to cultivate true belonging because uh, it's not the right setting and not the right person. So a um, couple thoughts about that, and I'd love to hear what you guys are, what you all are thinking as you're at this point in the year of listening, loving, and living. Deb W. writes, quick story about stories. Our 13-year-old has been dealing with bullying tendencies towards his 10-year-old brother, and that is one thing that usually gets my anger towards him. Mm-hmm. I hear you, Deb. Recently, I shared a story of my experience with my sister bullying me when I was around 10, and it really struck home with him. I could see the compassion come into his eyes, and since then, he has been amazingly patient with his brother. A huge win for our family. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that, Deb. Um, the, the shift, I mean, you shifted out of two, two or three different potential responses with him, right? Um, anger, um, you know, it's... The, the temptation in that moment is to shame him into not doing that behavior. Get angry, shame him. What's wrong with you? You're being horrible, big, big, you know, older sibling. Um, the another response is to sort of teach, right? Um, this is why you shouldn't treat a sibling like this. You know, they're going to be your best friend in 30 years. You know, they're the only one who's part of your life from the beginning. I mean, all of those. And then you you sort of you sort of didn't fall into the temptation to do either one of those and instead you simply made your story available to him and you got to see the impact that that kind of authenticity and vulnerability has and i'm so grateful for you sharing that and it 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 resonates back with what we were talking about uh last episode about how maybe it was two episodes ago about how um as parents generationally as parents become increasingly comfortable with sharing their vulnerabilities and their stories with their kids at an appropriate level 
um, places of true belonging can happen increasingly between parents and children and even adolescents. Um, and so I think you give us an example there too of how that's possible if, if parents are willing to be vulnerable and authentic as well, not just expecting that from their kids, but also willing to reciprocate it. So that's beautiful. Thank you. Vicki writes, I resonate a lot with the large group setting with the recent holiday weekend. I frequently find myself stepping outside of the circle of talking over one another that seems to spiral into one-upsmanship. Often it is a literal stepping outside of that circle. At other times, it is an internal stepping inside. Of course, as you know, family gatherings are often the most painful, evident examples of that lack of a safe place for true vulnerability. Yeah, boy, I appreciate what you just said. Um, I think that adds a nice nuance to it, Vicki, that um, sometimes it means literally stepping outside, leaving, leaving the, the social situation. Uh, and whether that's to go for a walk or to leave for good and head home or whatever, um, but sometimes it also means a stepping inside and saying, I can still stay in this space, um, but it's not a sort of space that I want to venture out into authenticity because it's not going to be received well. Um, and I think that's so important to remember that as we're talking about these months of loving and these months of cultivating belonging, it's about it's not just about authenticity, it's about wise authenticity. Um, it's about choosing to be authentic and connected with the people who, of course, it's always risky, um, but the, with the people who the odds are they'll be able to receive you and your story. Um, so Vicki, thanks for, for that, that nuance and that discernment. I really appreciate it. And you're right, you know, and again, back to what we were talking about with Deb. Families are often the most difficult place to find this sense of belonging. There's often a spirit of competition that develops within families, and for all sorts of reasons we could host another, another episode on. Um, you know, you're, you're, you develop your ego in the midst of family, and they're developing their ego in the midst of, of being formed in family with you. And so oftentimes in families, it's the most common place for egos to be sort of on display. And that one upsmanship is exactly, that's, a, that's the description of what the ego does. It's always trying to be on top. Um, and so, yeah, so in a family, to be able to counteract that natural tendency to have everyone protected by their egos and instead be stepping out authentically and connecting, um, it's, it's not a common thing. Um, and so we don't need to feel like our family is particularly broken if that's what's happening, it's, but, it, but it may not be the place necessarily to step out authentically either. Deb W. writes, Thanks everyone. My first response in the past has definitely been angry at his insensitivity and then teaching, you're the only, you're the only friends that you'll have in 30 years, blah, blah, blah. So definitely a huge win for us. Yeah, those are my two go-to modes, Deb. And, um, and yeah, and I think we, we might have talked about this a little bit on this episode. I mean, when you're dealing with teenagers and adolescents, you know, um, <laughs> I think one of the more common thoughts that I have in my mind and I try not to say it too much, and it helps me a little bit though, is, oh my gosh, you're so 14. <laughs> you know, like to be able to normalize that that sort of ego-driven behavior, right? I'm going to bully you. I'm going to try to be on top. I'm going to try to be dominant. Um, I'm going to try to feel better by making you feel worse. That's all about ego development, and it's normal ego development, um, but our job, hopefully, 
is to help our kids as quickly as possible begin to step out of that ego and, and relate to each other authentically. Um, and you modeled that for your son, so I, I, I have no doubt that modeling that helped him to understand how to do it himself. So um, yeah, that's, uh, it's normal, and yet we want to invite them into something better. The birds outside are so loud today, I know they're going to be on the podcast. Uh, it's so funny. Deb W. writes, Dr. Kelly, you said once that you're a great dad to one kid. Oh boy, you remember my words. An okay dad to two and not so good to three. That really resonated with me um, for to spend attentional time with each one, especially since quality time is my top love language. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I just, we just went on a vacation, road trip out east, um, spent a whole week with family, had a blast with all of my kids. Um, and had some trouble with all of my kids at some point or another, but um, but yeah, I as a as a dad, um, the the strengths that I bring to being a parent, they're not demonstrated in a group setting, not even close. Um, and so that's yeah, Deb, when you you share that story, um, it's just a reminder to me that um, it's time to get reconnected one on one with my kids and um, and have those moments with them too. So thanks for thanks for that push. Mike writes, Deb, anything that gets rid of blah, blah, blah is a win. Congratulations. <laughs> and I will tell you that any teenager will be deeply grateful for blah, blah, blah getting being, being gotten rid of because probably whatever feels like blah, blah, blah to you feels like that 10 times to them. So um, absolutely, that is a win. Clements writes, big first for me yesterday. I could talk to my mom about meaningful matters that we disagree on without shedding any tears or getting awfully angry at her. Proud of myself. Oh my gosh, can we all just rejoice with you that the, the disagreement wasn't a trigger for your, your shame and for your sadness and for your tears and also wasn't a trigger for your ego to rise up and get angry and want to to um, to do that thing and that instead you could just sort of reside in your true self and and have a disagreement and know that that's okay and that your opinions are still valid valid um, how how beautiful um, we rejoice with you Clements that is wonderful Clements writes pictured closing the lid on my bucket that is helping a lot in the very passionate French background <laughs> that's awesome um, the, my, when we were out east, my my wife's grandmother was using a uh, um, a coffee mug that my wife had sent her at one point, and it, on the coffee mug it says, "I'm not I'm not yelling, I'm Portuguese." <laughs> so I'm familiar with that passion, um, and uh, and yeah, and being able to um, to to create that sense of emotional independence that your intensity doesn't need to be my intensity can be absolutely freeing. So. Clements, I'm thrilled to hear that, that that image of closing the lid on your bucket has helped you do that. Mike writes, I found myself more patient with others, especially the kids and wife, as I was able to forgive myself and let go of shame. You know, Mike, that's a, an important reminder to all of us about why these months of loving and of cultivating belonging follow on the heels of the months of, of listening and uh, recognizing our, our truest, worthiest self because it really is in the uh, sort of the internal interior world of ourselves that we first practice forgiveness and seeing with the eyes of grace and being able to see someone's true self, our own true self, right? And if we can do that, if we're able to practice that within ourselves, that sort of seeing overflows in the way we begin to see other people. Um, and now, now when they behave in certain ways, we can go, oh, 
that's ego. That's protection. Um, and I, I, I get that that's not, that's not all of you. There's a true self in there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on seeing that. So it truly reshapes the way that we engage in our relationships if first we practiced embracing our own true self. Just how wonderful to hear about these really significant shifts. You know, um, I, I continue to experience them in my life and it's, it's like when you, when you see it happening, it is just, it's just a joyful experience. Like, oh wow, I was different in that situation. <laughs> I couldn't tell you, you know, A, B, C and ha D happened and that led to this, but something has shifted because I was different in that situation. It's such a reason to rejoice um, in, in all of these things that are happening. Lovely. Heather writes, the hubs and I are going through a weird space right now. And I have faith we will be fine, but there has been a lot of stress and anxiety. But with this process, I've been trying to be more loving and less letting my anxiety regarding the situation run the show. Hmm. I mean, the number one most sort of destructive relational pattern, you know, sometimes it's referred to as the pursuer distancer pattern, Heather, and sometimes it's referred to as the um, demand withdraw pattern. Um, but usually what it is, is, um, in a, in a relationship is that the, it's, it's two diametrically opposed ways of, ha of managing one's anxiety. And typically gender role wise, typically when you look at the data, women are usually more in the pursuing role and men are in the distancing role. And, uh, and typically what's happening is it looks like men are not anxious. But actually, when you hook them up to EKGs and all sorts of biofeedback equipment, what you see in the communication is that actually their anxiety spikes and they withdraw in order to manage that anxiety. Um, and that distance creates anxiety in their spouse. And their spouse then, in order to manage their own anxiety, begins to pursue and push for, for more connection. Um, and so the key is... Uh, to begin to create a space where you can be authentic about the anxiety that is underpinning that that pattern, both for both spouses, right? I get I get anxious and overwhelmed, and so I withdraw and disconnect because it just feels safer, you know. Or I get anxious that, that it being abandoned and left, and so I start to pursue you. Um, and so your awareness that there's an anxiety underpinning that um, can be transformative for your relationship. Um, especially if both of you can sort of consent <laughs> to having a conversation that is about the anxiety and not, uh, not all of just the surface patterns of communication that happen in the relationship. Heather writes, so true regarding comment about anxiety push and pull. It's definitely what has happened in the past and trying to evolve into a different, healthier pattern. Um, Heather, I don't know. If <laughs> I, I know I do not have permission to share recent events in my marriage, um, but... I, I, I was heard this past weekend in our house saying, so I think, I think we're in a familiar script and I think this is how it's going to go. And, uh, um, I just want to, I want to go through it faster than usual. And, uh, um, uh, there, there, there are ways I could have said that better, but, um, but the point being, you know, I do think as couples, we, we, we revisit scripts, um, ways of patterns of relating. And the goal is to recognize when you're back in that, to be able to sort of objectify that script as a couple and go, Oh yeah, this, I'm going to do this. Now you're going to do that. I'm going to do this. How can we, how can we do something different with the script? How can we rewrite it a little bit this time? Um, and then you get a lifetime to do that. I think that's that's sort of how it works. Uh, it's how we it's how we get challenged to grow and transform as individuals in a couple.
And let's actually transition from there into this week's reading, because so much of this uh, week's focus is on um, going underneath the, the sort of the perfect facades that we try to keep on in a relationship and, and going underneath that to begin to embrace sort of our mutual brokenness. Um, and actually basing our criteria for people that we want to try to invest in, in terms of belonging, basing that criteria on how willing will they be to go underneath the surface and deal with that, that the messier stuff and the broken stuff with me. Um, so let's, let's get into that reading. As a context this week, I'm going to, um, I'm going to read an excerpt from Lovable. It begins on page 137 in chapter 18 of Lovable, which is entitled, Maybe Heaven Really Is in Our Midst, which is a sort of, well, I didn't plan it this way, but my blog post this morning, um, talks about, I mean, deals with a very similar story and, um, similar ideas. So here we go. Same. It's a common refrain heard among adolescents. It's a teenager's way of saying, hey, I have the same interest or belief or blue jeans or favorite musician, so I must belong to you. And if the match isn't perfect, well, they'll fudge a little bit, like suddenly falling in love with sports because the person they've fallen in love with is an athlete. Same. It's a shortcut to finding a place to belong. I have it memorized. In college, I majored in psychology, but in life, I majored in people-pleasing. My parents liked it when I was funny, so I told lots of jokes. Same. My teachers liked it when I knew the answers, so I studied hard and my hand was always in the air. Same. I had a skill for discerning what people wanted to hear from me, and I made sure they heard it. Same. I was raised in Ronald Reagan's hometown, so I voted Republican. Same. I listened to Paul Simon, but my friends listened to Pearl Jam, so I traded the sound of silence for the loudness of grunge. Same. My dad was a therapist, so I became a therapist, too. Same. I was becoming a psychologist and a husband and a father, but mostly I was becoming a chameleon. I used to be ashamed of the way I shifted colors. It seemed pathetic. Now I know it was just my way of trying to become unlonely. And I know I'm not alone in my penchant for color shifting. It's what we do to manufacture belonging. We hide, or more precisely, we blend. And it is our ego walls we hide behind, because they make great camouflage. If the people in our life are essentially unpleasable, school bullies and abusive parents, for instance, our true self will hunker down behind our ego walls and try not to make a peep. We internalize our pain, turn silence and withdrawal into an art form, and try to fly completely under the radar. But just as often, we hide in plain sight, behind our ego. When we sense the people we want to belong to can be pleased and appeased, we try to keep them happy in order to keep them close. We build our ego wall and adorn the outside of it with mirrors, so when people look at us, they just see themselves. Same. It's a deception, of course, but the real problem is, once you become a chameleon, it gets more and more difficult to let your true colors be seen. Maybe you know this story. People are bringing children to Jesus, and his closest followers rebuke him for letting it happen. Jesus responds by saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In a way, his proclamation seems like a tease. Is Jesus giving us a clue about how to get into heaven? And if so, isn't it a little cruel to be so vague? And why does the kingdom of heaven belong to children? I wonder if Jesus knew that childhood is best understood as the time before we begin to build our ego walls. I wonder if Jesus was saying that to be childlike is to be yourself without concern for pleasing anyone or hiding anything about the good thing you are. And I wonder if Jesus was saying that's what heaven feels like, the freedom to be seen, to be known, and to bid farewell to the loneliness wrought by our hiding. Maybe in part, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near because heaven is present anytime two people take down the ego walls between them, drop the facades which hide them and separate them, and finally reach out and embrace the differences between them. Maybe heaven is when two or three, when two or more gather, and they don't declare same. Maybe heaven is when two or more gather and proclaim different but one, different 
but united, different, but together. So this week's reading from the companion book, which sort of builds on some of those ideas, is uh, week 23, the most important thing to look for in a best friend. For most couples, my psychotherapy office is a last resort. It takes the deepest courage to make the first phone call to a therapist, and couples often wait until they feel almost hopeless. And I am truly blessed to walk through the valleys with such courageous people. Yet I must admit, I take a special delight in couples who call earlier. On rare occasion, I will get a call from a young couple who is planning to marry and would like premarital counseling. They come into the office and they usually sit next to each other and hold hands and gaze into each other's eyes and sometimes I feel a little awkward, like I've stumbled into their date and should give them some privacy. And quite often they will say things like, there's nothing wrong with him, he's amazing, or she's absolutely perfect, or we get along all the time, we never fight, and my alarm bells go off. Because when I'm looking for the building blocks of a lifelong partnership or friendship or companionship of any kind, I'm not looking for two perfect people, mainly because two perfect people don't exist. We're all a mess of one kind or another. No, I'm looking for two people who know their brokenness and who know they fall short of the best ways to love and who want to get better at it one day at a time, year after year, decade upon decade. Because if a person doesn't want to grow and change, no amount of convincing them is going to make them. For instance, in the original form of couples therapy, the intervention included a caring activities contract. It was a bit of a disaster. Essentially, spouses listed the ways they wanted their partner to change, signed a contract committing the other to doing so, and then each spouse kept a running tally of how often they were holding up their end of the bargain. The caring activities contract often led to greater conflict, and therapists no longer use it. Because the truth is, as spouses, we are ultimately and utterly powerless over our partners. If our partner truly does not want to change, there is fundamentally nothing we can do to make them change. In fact, our very efforts to coerce change will further entrench our loved ones in their existing behaviors. In any loving relationship, you control you, no one else. Which means the people we choose to belong to had better be eternally interested in taking a look at their own issues, increasingly willing to be vulnerable about their own brokenness, and absolutely determined to figure out what it means to love more deeply and purely. I remember the night my wife told me her story. We had known each other for only three weeks, and through the quiet hours of the night she told me about her journey. It was marked by resilience and tenacity and determination. She had plenty of reasons to be angry, but instead she was investing her energy into learning how to love. By the time the sun rose, something new had risen in me. I didn't know what it was then, but I did know I wasn't going to let this woman go. Only recently have I realized what rose up in me that night. I am attracted to people who like to fight not with other people, but with themselves. I want people in my life who know they are broken and have decided every day is another opportunity to redeem it. People who fight with themselves first, not in a shaming, self-destructive way, but in a resilient, grace-filled effort to be transformed into a more loving person. May we be patient as we wait for that quiet night when someone reveals to us a heart of brokenness and a heart of grace and sacrifice and love. Let's choose to be with people who are perfectly aware they aren't perfect, and want, who want to get better with every rising sun. And just as importantly, let's become someone like that too. So that is this week's reading. And as I was preparing for this episode and rereading what I had written, and uh, you know, I wrote this about a year and a half ago, and uh, there's a part of me that was like, I don't totally agree with that anymore. <laughs> um, and what I, what I found myself wanting to tweak was this line, I want people in my life who know they are broken. Um, and I would tweak it a little bit, I think, these days. 
And I think what I would say is I want people in my life who know they have blind spots. Um, I, I, I don't expect anyone to totally understand, you know, their, their brokenness and their mess and, you know, all of the complicated things that go on underneath the surface of our facades. Um, but boy, I, I do want to be in a relationship with people who go, I know I don't know. I know I've got blind spots. I know there are things that I'm not aware of in myself. Um, that uh, that need to be dealt with. So um, to me, it's that posture. Of, I know I've got blind spots, and uh, I'm going to try to focus on discovering those blind spots rather than always focusing on what's wrong with you and how you need to change to to care for me differently. Um, and if two people can do that, holy cow, um, what an awesome thing begins to happen in a relationship. So that was those, that was my reaction to the reading, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing yours. Julie writes, holy cow, my brain was full after the same chameleon part. The growth mindset part at the end links in and the couple's part in the middle feels separate and also valuable. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've noticed multiple times, and I'm hearing it not just from my own kids, but even people, you know, kids in other school districts, and it seems to be part of a, a learning initiative at this point, is to help kids identify like a growth mindset and help them help cultivate a growth mindset in kids. Um, and it's being applied to school and learning facts and learning, you know, but, um, boy, when we can bring that to our relationships, then again, two people, both of them bringing that to a relationship, I want to have a growth mindset. I want to be challenged by you to discover ways that I'm, I'm, I'm not totally understanding how I work. Um, that can be really powerful if two people are in that growth mindset. So thanks for labeling that. I think that's a term that a lot of us can, can sort of hold on to. Celeste writes, thanks, I don't believe in broken growth opportunities. Yes, right. Um, yeah, it's it's a positive reframe. I suppose brokenness could be considered a glass half empty way of, of saying that, Celeste. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, growth opportunities um, from, a, from the perspective, from using the metaphor of brokenness, healing opportunities, right? Um, in that the, um, I'll take a bone for instance. When a bone grows, it grows strong. But when it's broken and healed, it grows even stronger than when it was originally growing. Um, and so I think that there's a, I think there's something powerful about that idea of, of healing too. But I'm a therapist and biased on that, right? So uh, take it with a grain of salt. Anne writes, awesome reading, so true, couples seek help far too late. Wish my ex and I could have acknowledged our brokenness before it was too late. Yeah, you know, and I think that for a lot of couples who are considering therapy, uh, when we say too late, um, what we mean is that the, the ego patterns have gotten so well established and the sense of unsafety is so great that the need for a protective ego, usually on both spouses' parts, has become so entrenched um, that there's sort of a calculated decision of, I, I can't undo this. I don't feel safe enough to undo this. Um, I'm not invested in all the, the work it would take to undo and begin to let go of my ego here. And so, so yeah, I think that for couples beginning to realize that, well, my ego is, is, is dictating too much of this relationship. This is the time to get some help now before that becomes too entrenched. Um, that's what we want to encourage couples to do. Celeste writes, yes, vulnerable and being big enough to admit our stuff with each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, being able to say, hey, this is, this is my junk. Um, and I think a lot of that, Celeste, has to do with the fact that we, we worry, right, that if we're not perfect, that people will leave us, right? You must have, you must have decided to hitch your wagon to mine, to spend your life with me because you decided I was, I was the stuff, right? And if I quit being the stuff, if I quit being as fantastic as you thought I was on day one, 
um, will you really want to stick around? Um, and the the message the message is throughout this entire year is that yeah we ultimately what we're hungering for is authenticity and connection, not not perfection. Um, perfection falls very flat. Um, and uh, and so yeah, so that's what we want to encourage people to know is that um, actually by letting down the facade and beginning to engage about our messy stuff, um, we're actually giving each other exactly what we, we long for the most. Julie writes, I like the blind spots version a ton, and that is portable to do many to, to many situations and even logical type people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. I think um, in the same, you know, in the same way that growth mindset um, is something pithy and tangible we can hold on to. I think blind spots is also something that most of us can relate to. And even at an intellectual level go, yeah, I'm not, I'm not aware of how I'm uh, working entirely. And, uh, the, the places where I'm not aware might be really affecting this relationship. Um, Rob, I remember Rob Bell at one point, I think when he was doing an interview with his wife about a marriage book he wrote, um, said with marriage, you get a second set of eyes. Um, and I would I would generalize that to belonging. In places of belonging, you get a second set of eyes. And those eyes see you with grace. They see your true self through all your mess, which makes them eyes that you can trust. Um, and and then they be, they can, based upon that sense of safety in the relationship, they can then say, but I'm also seeing this. <laughs> and we can take that in, trusting that it's in our best interest. So I think in, uh, in places of belonging, we get a second set of eyes we can trust. Clements writes, I know I have blind spots and will try to find them, but eventually fail to find and fill all of them. Perfection is overrated and so destructive. Absolutely, Clements. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah, the in the end here, in the end here, it's not about, right, this is so good. Because if you turn it into another, another ego project, right, another perfection project, well, I'm going to identify all... 102 of my blind spots and eliminate them and then I'll be perfect and I won't have to the project will be over uh, No, no perfections overrated um, It's actually the process of engaging in the humility of acknowledging that we'll always have blind spots and that we're seeking people who will humbly engage in that conversation as well um, That's where that's where belonging comes from not to people who feel like they finally got to a place of perfection Brenda writes a family situation started a withdrawal first stepping in, then stepping out cycle that carried those fears into my own family's relationships the past two weeks. Even though the situation is as good as it can be at the moment, I'm tempted to hide even from my best friends. This reading about facades is good for me. Um, Brenda, I think that's a great segue into this week's practice because this week's practice is about identifying a friend um, who you can um, step out from behind that facade with and just say, um, this is this is something that you need to know about me. It's a really challenging exercise, um, and uh, and whether or not whether or not we ultimately follow through with it, preparing for it, preparing for that kind of engagement, I think can be powerful as well. So I'm going to get into this week's exercise, and then we'll, we'll wrap up the discussion from there. Week 23 practice. Last week we focused on listening to the story of someone with whom we would like to cultivate true belonging. This week we're going to focus on doing something even more complicated and challenging we are going to tell our own story. This is difficult because when we reveal our story to someone, we will be revealing more than just our truest, worthiest parts. We will be revealing all of it. So this week, we are going to focus on telling our own story, the imperfect version. Begin by asking yourself several questions. 
Number one, in what ways is my story a broken story? Number two, in what ways am I not perfect at being in relationship? Number three, what mistakes do I commonly make in relationships? Number four, how am I good at apologizing and when am I not so good at it? Number five, how am I working on giving and receiving love more freely? How am I working on it is the key there. Number six, in what ways do I need help to continue getting better at love? Next, after writing down the answers to these questions, and that's important, writing down the answers to these questions, spending some time in the questions is just as important as anything else. After writing down the answers to these questions, identify at least one person you feel you could sit down with and show this entry to and share the answers you wrote down. Then schedule a get-together with one of the people you identified. You may not be able to meet this week, but make sure by the end of the week you have something on the calendar. Eventually, get together. Share your story in light of the answers to the questions above. This kind of revelation is gutsy stuff. Belonging is built on bravery. I can't emphasize that last phrase enough. Belonging is built on bravery. Um, I go back to what I said earlier, Deb W., your, uh, your comment about that interaction with your your 14-year-old, I think you said, did you? Um, and it, it reminded me that I need to, I need to be, I need to be uh, intentional about spending some time with my oldest. Um, the truth is, um, the truth is that when I get, um, when I overcommit myself, you know, here, what's the question? In what ways am I not perfect at being in relationship? Here's one. Um, well, in what ways is my story a broken story? It's a lonely story, number one. Um, and in what ways am I not perfect at being in a relationship? When I overcommit myself, um, I start to feel lonely as if sort of um, it's all on me. I'm all alone. I'm the only one who's sort of keeping the world running. It's one of the places I go. Um, and so what mistakes do I commonly make in relationships? I look around at the people in my life and I can be critical of them for not not contributing as much as I do when in reality I'm the one who's choosing all those commitments <laughs> um, and so it's about whether or not I'm going to change my tendency to overcommit instead I make it about them and uh, and just this morning I, I did that to my oldest um, and I put myself in his shoes and I wouldn't feel very good about that um, if I were him and uh, I need to I need to sit down with him and say oh hey here's my pattern and you've seen it happen over and over again in my life, but you may have never understood it. And, um, you know, I grew up feeling really lonely, decided that everything was on me, and now I overcommit and try to take responsibility for everything. And when I do that, I get really unfairly critical of the people around me. And you're, you're one of those people. Um, and I don't know what will come from that, but um, I think that kind of vulnerability is, um, well, it's the way that I want to be in relationship to him. And hopefully it will invite him into the same kind of thing. Mike writes, I don't know that my wife is able, willing to deal with her things. Frankly, no one is able to deal with all of it, right? What I am willing to do is continue with her regardless of if she deals with her things or not. I'm also aware enough to understand that things I think need to be dealt with might not, yeah, exactly, might not be important to her. They might not even be real. I've been known to be delusional from time to time. Mike, I, thank you for adding that balance to the conversation. So important. Um, 
so important that, for instance, um, in a moment where I think, you know, my wife has a blind spot and there's something that needs to be changed, turns out it's actually a blind spot of mine that I think that that needs to be changed. <laughs> that actually that's a part of who she is and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and I actually need to start learn how to adapt to that and how to embrace that, right? Um, and I, I think that's the idea, is that we're not about trying to get each other to um, kind of fix all of our brokenness. We're sort of entering in with the humility, which you're demonstrating here in this comment, um, that I'm taking responsibility for all the ways I'm not entirely certain of, um, of myself, of what I need to deal with, of what I'm expecting from you even. Um, it's so important to introduce that balance. And, uh, and, and really, it does end in a place of humility. So thanks for, thanks for modeling that for us. Deb F. writes, I think people respond to others' brokenness, feel more comfortable with someone who admits flaws and mistakes. It's kind of like a me too scenario. It's frustrating to deal with someone who has a huge ego and says not me or blames others. Who wants to hang around with that? Yeah, exactly, right? Because even if at this moment they're not blaming you, eventually they will. <laughs> eventually that, that, uh, that, that finger will get turned on you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's a, something inherently safe about being in a relationship where a person is just saying, this is what I'm working on. Um, what are you working on? And, uh, and together you can kind of say, yeah, we're, we're sort of, uh, we've got these self-projects that we're both working on side by side. Um, Want to do that with me for a while? Yeah. Let's do it. Um, and, uh, and so much of the pressure is taken off of the relationship in that moment. Oliver writes, it is never too late if both are willing to grow individually. It's so true, Oliver. Um, if, yeah, both people say, I'm willing to be brave. I'm willing to step out from behind the safety of this, this ego thing that I've got going. Um, it truly is never too late. Um, I've... I've been, even as a therapist who's eternally optimistic for couples, I've even been surprised by the way that some couples can grow and how quickly they can grow and heal and um, connect if they're willing to do that. Clements writes, I've been around people aiming to become unsinkable, not healthy. A chameleon parent and the other denying it won't be able to fix everything. Brings up a lot of growing, cleaning opportunities. Lucky me. <laughs> oh, man. The goal is to not recreate the same scenario in the next generation, right, Clements? I mean, that's always got to be the goal, to do it just a little bit better, not perfectly, but a little bit better and or a little bit differently, a little bit healthier. And uh, sounds like you're ready to do that. Good for you. Mike writes, love the second set of eyes. That's great. And we have that. It's taken a while, but we both trust each other. That's it. That's it, Mike. Um, the willingness to just say, okay, I can... I can, I can handle your feedback. In fact, I might even value it and cherish it. I may not always receive it super happily, but I'll, I'll take it and consider it. So good. Julie writes, this conversation about blind spots is deeply encouraging me that I'm looking for the right things in people. Thank you to all. That is, that's awesome, Julie. Um, so this is an affirmation for you that uh, your, your focus on looking for people who have the humility to say, I'm not entirely sure how I work and I'm still learning and figuring it out. That's, that's what you should be, should be looking for in, in the places where you're choosing to invest your energy and time in cultivating belonging, right? And it's so important to remember, and we need to say this again, because the ego will come in. The ego will come in once again and start judging, right? Oh, I don't see you as very interested in, uh, in, in looking into your blind spots. So you must not be as enlightened as me. You must not be as healthy as me. You must, that's just the ego now coming in. Now you're right back. Now you're in your blind spot, right? And, uh, and so it's, it's not about 
sort of judging in the I'm better than you way. It's judging in a discerning way. Where am I going to pour in my time and my energy and my vulnerability and my bravery? Where, where are the places that I want to do that? Well, I want to do it with people who are aware of their blind spots, that they have blind spots. Brenda writes, how do you know which person is supposed to adapt in each situation? Um, I, it will always, 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 always work best and be most healing and most transformative if you assume that both, that both people are needing to adapt. There's a, um, there's a great, he's a sort of YouTube personality, uh, Elaine de Baton, I think is his name. School of Life is his YouTube channel. And I remember something that he said is that compatibility isn't a prerequisite for marriage. It's a, it's an outcome. It's the result of marriage. Um, and that we are both constantly adapting. And in most situations, there's room probably for a little bit from each partner. So I, that's, I think that that's the safest place to be. Heather writes, belonging built on bravery, mantra for the week. Good. I'm so glad to hear that, Heather. All right, everybody, let's wrap up this, uh, just another wonderful discussion. Let's wrap it up here for this week. Thank you so much for being here and for truly showing up. Um, I'm looking forward to our discussion next week already. Uh, it's going to be, it's week 24 of the year of listening and loving. It's entitled the other most important thing to look for in a best friend. Until then, remember you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the lovable podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Cause you-